Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. This is Lee Sauls, author of Sell Different, all new sales differentiation strategies to outsmart, outmaneuver, and outsell the competition. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Lee Sauls to talk about his new book, Sell Different, all new sales differentiation strategies to outsmart, outmaneuver, and outsell the competition, published by HarperCollins. Lee Sauls is a keynote speaker and sales management strategist on sales differentiation, sales force development, hiring, onboarding, compensation, and other sales performance topics. He is the CEO of Sales Architects, and prior to that, for most of his career, he served in sales and marketing leadership roles. He's the author of several books, including Sales Differentiation, 19 Powerful Strategies to Win More Deals at the Prices You Want, and is a featured columnist in the business journals and is a media source on sales and sales management and has been quoted and featured in the Wall Street Journal, CNN, the New York Times, MSNBC, ABC News, and numerous other outlets. And interesting facts, he is a championship power lifter, a diehard New York Yankees fan, and he proposed to his wife in the White House Rose Garden. Lee, congratulations on Sell Different, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. 
Wow, and you did your homework. My goodness, it's great to be back. <laughs> it is great to have you back. And I got to tell you, I've been taking you on the road with me over the years, ever since I read Sales Differentiation, because I talk about that book uh, in a series of presentations I often give to, to different groups. And it always gets a, a, a quite a, a great reaction. And I like to tell them about how that book, the beginning at least, uh, talks about the different things you can do to differentiate your company. But the number one thing that you can differentiate your company and provide a better customer experience is with your sales process. What's the experience people have? That was such a big takeaway for me, and I hadn't seen a, a book like that. So when I found out that you had this book, I had to have you, Lee. <laughs> Douglas, thank you. You're very kind. So now, it's hard to get into the White House Rose Garden. Tell us what you were doing there. I don't think you were the President of the United States, but I just don't keep up with these things. Well, you should keep up. I was president. No. (laughs) So a great story. My dear friend from high school was a branch chief with FEMA, and he arranged for a private tour in the White House. This is during uh, the Clinton administration. And this was two years to the day of when I had met my wife. I met my wife at a wedding. My best friend married her cousin. This isn't some funky tree thing. (laughs) And you weren't a, uh, a wedding crasher. I was not a wedding crasher. We actually walked down the aisle together. So two years to the day, I had set this up. And Sharon didn't believe for one second that we were really going to the White House. Because we, what we told her was that FEMA was hosting a party for um, – I'm sorry, that the White House was hosting a party for FEMA to thank them for their help on the Olympics. And we were invited as my friend's guest. She didn't buy it for a second. And we pull up to the White House, and she takes my buddy's wife aside. And of course, you know, they're in the loop and like, gosh, you know, I thought I was getting engaged today. I really appreciate you bringing us to the White House, but um, kind of disappointed. <laughs> my, ah. buddy, my buddy's wife says, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll talk to Lee and, and, and see. So uh, we start going on this tour. Again, it's a private tour, just the four of us and a guide. And I remember going into the Oval Office. I, I remember nothing of what I saw. Because I was thinking about up proposing. So. Yeah, you better get that right. <laughs> Pressure was on. So we get to the Rose Garden, and there's no roses in the Rose Garden. And my buddy says, um, Lee, we're here. I'm like, oh. So I <laughs> I, I turn and, and uh, propose to Sharon. We're married almost 25 years. February will be 25 years. And she didn't say yes. She didn't say no. She just came going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And all these Secret Service guys talking into their hands saying, we've got a crazy lady in the White House. <laughs> It's probably not the first time Secret Service has said that. So, Right, that's true. That's true. But three kids later, and we are now, as of a few weeks ago, empty nesters. So getting used to, to that environment now. Well, I do hope at one point she did say yes. Well, she put the ring on her hand. I mean, you got to close the deal. Yes, I know. I know. Well, it's called the assumptive close. Oh, there you go. <laughs> she had the wedding. We're living together almost 25 years now. So uh-huh. three kids couple dogs yeah so. well she probably still wants to make sure uh, this thing works out so right. uh, <laughs> keep her options open you know this is a pilot program and that's something you talk about in, in your book so lee this will be episode 352 if i have my numbers right and you were on episode 204 in 2018 so what that means for those uh, mathematicians playing the home game Every 148 episodes, Lee Sauls will be coming back to the Marketing Book Podcast. So, Lee Sauls, if you add 352 and, and 148, that means I'm holding open episode 500. 
for you. And that'll be on August 9th, 2024. So if you didn't have plans to write another book, think about that as a, you know, a forcing function. That sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) So the book is endorsed by some uh, past guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, and I'm a big fan of of their books, people like uh, Mark Hunter and Mike Weinberg and Anthony uh, Anarino. And for the first-time listener, there's always a first-time listener on on every episode of a podcast, and they're probably wondering, "Ah, I thought this is the Marketing Book Podcast. Why is there a book about sales on the podcast? The reason why is because the best, most successful marketers have a deep understanding of sales, the sales process, and even more importantly, the buying process and what's going through the prospect's mind because they can be enormously helpful to the salespeople. And Jeb Blunt, uh, author of another uh, of several books, uh, who, who you know, he has told me that he, for his sales training business, he gets more leads from marketing people than from salespeople or CEOs. And I always found that interesting. In other words, there are a lot of marketing people out there that are doing a great job, but the sales function is maybe a little bit broken. And they're actually the ones that are trying to bring in some help for for their their sales counterparts. And I always found that uh, interesting. And there have been about 50 sales books on the podcast. And anyone that wants a link to Every single one of those episodes, I've actually got them already. <laughs> I can, I will send you a link to every sales book interview that's been on the podcast, and then you can decide where you want to go. But I have a suggestion for all marketers, and that every marketer, at minimum, should read at least one sales book a year. And another thought I had is that if you are interested in sales and marketing alignment, like so many people are, and you're trying to build a bridge to salespeople, read a sales book and then offer it to your sales counterpart and say, I thought this was a really good book. You might like it as well. I would think that would have a a, a great impact rather than you know uh, some of the other uh, more superficial things that, that you could be doing. So Lee, your books are extremely well-written, and they are particularly clear. In other words, you have a a certain writing style that is just really clear. And as a reader of many books, I really appreciate that. (laughs) I appreciate that. I'm going to out myself a little bit here. I fundamentally hate reading. I hate it. Oh, that's right. You mentioned that. Yeah. I hate it. Much to the chagrin of my mother, who's retired now, but she was an educational evaluator in the New York City school system. Um, Hate it. I didn't say I don't do it. I do it, and I do it religiously because I need it for my profession. I need it to help my clients. But my deal is I won't write a book that I personally wouldn't read. That's terrific. So you're writing it for somebody that maybe feels the same way you do. It's not a long book, and it seems to me like it's much more difficult to write a short book. And it's very carefully written, and I certainly appreciate that, and it really struck me as being very clear. So if you only come on every 148 episodes, that's fine. Take your time, because it's <laughs> worth the wait. Thank you. So I want to read from uh, one part at the beginning of the introduction, page uh, XXI, for those listeners in Rome. <laughs> There are plenty of books to help further your sales career. As you consider reading Sell Different, you may be asking yourself, why this one? 
The sole reason to read this book is to learn how to win more deals at the prices you want. Competition has never been more fierce than it is today. The difference in products and services from one competitor to another are smaller than ever before. This is true in all business settings, business to business, business to consumer, and business to government. While competition may be tough, business owners and executives still expect their salespeople to acquire new accounts while protecting margins. But how do you win more deals at the prices you want when the differences among products are so slight? The solution is to outsmart, outmaneuver, and outsell the competition. Every chapter in this book reveals strategies, techniques, and tactics to do just that. Sell Different has nothing to do with the product, service, or technology you are selling and everything to do with the ways you sell. My commitment to you is that you will come away from reading Sell Different with new ways to win more deals at the prices you want. If you read this book and it fails to meet that promise, email your purchase receipt to me and I'll give you a full refund. Well, 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 Mr. Sauls, I think you've eliminated any uh, fear or uh, perceived risk that the listener might have. Before we go any further, explain how this book is different or goes with the last book that was on the show, Sales Differentiation. So you're going to put me on the spot just a few minutes into this. So I come on your show, second time now, and you're going to put the spotlight right on me in the first few minutes. Let's talk about something important. (laughs) So you think it's fair to ask me what's different? Yeah. Of course it is. Well, you also write about that in the book, so I I have a cheat sheet here. I know, but you see, so often salespeople don't get that. See, whether buyers ask you that point blank like you did with me or not, that's the question that's on their mind every time they meet with a salesperson. They want to know what's different. And if you can't articulate it, If you can't demonstrate it, you know what the decision comes down to? Price. You got it. That's a good bingo. So what's different about sell different? Just like you said, that sales has never been tougher, competition's fierce, and executives aren't lowering their expectations of salespeople. I haven't seen one executive say, hey, salespeople, I know it's tough out there. We're going to cut your quota by 50%. (laughs) Go ahead. Sell the deals at 20 points lower margin. We're cool with that. Yeah, maybe only on the TV show The Office. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Not in real life. They still expect the salespeople to win at high rates while protecting margins. Or, And and this is a little news here. I just trademarked this. Win more deals at the prices you want. So what I've done in Sell Different is to help salespeople when what they're selling, the differences are so slight. In Sell Different, I give you the strategies, the tools, if you will, to help you outsmart, outmaneuver, and outsell the competition. So from how you generate leads, how you get referrals, how you handle discovery meetings, how you sell virtually. You know, Douglas, when I wrote the proposal for HarperCollins, there wasn't a chapter planned on virtual selling. But then this little thing happened. What's it called again? Oh, the pandemic, right. (laughs) Now there's a chapter on virtual selling. How to deal with the ultimate deal killer, fear of change, and, and much, much more. Yeah, and you got a whole chapter on virtual selling. There is a whole chapter. Yeah. Absolutely. Every single chapter, you you talked about the care in writing the book. Um, I'll give you a peek into the kitchen. First round of editing, I took the manuscript and I sent it to a bunch of my corporate clients, people who would be the ideal audience for this book. I said, I got one question for you. As you read this manuscript, what could you not implement based on how I described it? Because my objective with this book was that you could step-by-step know how to implement the strategies that I've laid out 
without having to call me and write a check. That was the intent, mm. that you would be self-sufficient reading this book. You don't hear that very often. Most books, they just give you little teasers, and there's no way on your own you could ever implement it. That was my intent. That is my intent would sell different. It's immensely practical, and there were several places in the book where I wrote down marketing could be helping with this, or marketing could do this. That's why I just thought, particularly as it relates to content. And you know, sometimes I think I get more ideas from reading sales books than I do from reading marketing books. I mean, the marketing books are great, and they really, I learn so much from them. But when I read about the frustrations and the problems that salespeople have and buyers have, it just screams out for things that marketing could be helping with. Speaking of that, let me mention something that you have on page six. You write, over the years, I've had the opportunity to interview buyers about their frustrations with salespeople. Their three biggest complaints are that salespeople don't make them feel special, they aren't genuine, and they aren't responsive. And then you go on to write, none of those three points require you to differentiate what you sell, nor do they cost you or your company a penny. What I wanted to ask you about is on page 15, actually, you say that one of the favorite questions you like to ask salespeople, and my sense is that you do a lot of training and you spend a lot of time with salespeople and businesses, you like to ask them, who is your toughest competitor? Why is that one of your favorite questions to ask? Oh, I love it. I love it. Because no one's ever answered the question correctly. So I'll ask this of a big keynote audience, and I'll call on some people, and they'll name three players in their space. And of course, I'm sure you know those are tough ones, but there's one even tougher. And you know and what? It, I thought, oh, it's the status quo, and that's not it either. You even address that. I do. Because yeah. some knucklehead in the crowd will stand up and say, oh, you mean that old sales trainer one, the status quo. Or no the decision, choice, yeah. Right, the choice to do nothing. But there's one even more formidable. And then they'll think about it for a moment and say, oh, it's me. And certainly there's validity to this. If you don't have the right mindset when you're selling, you can be a tough competitor. But there's one even tougher, even more formidable, and no one's ever guessed it. And this is what makes this so fun for me. It's every salesperson calling the same person you are trying to get a meeting. We're <laughs> egocentric when we think about competition. Yeah. Right? But let's put ourselves on the other side of the desk. So let's say we call CIOs and we sell a software product. CIOs are inundated by prospecting calls and emails from salespeople representing their entire purview uh, and beyond, right? Software, hardware, outsourcing, program, all of these things, inundated. So you're probably not feeling real good if you're a salesperson right now because you're not competing against a handful of players, you're competing against hundreds, if not thousands of salespeople selling the same thing. That thing is a meeting. Mm -hmm. So I, I'll share another little insight here. I went to college in upstate New York. It was called SUNY Binghamton. Now it's Binghamton University. And I was a history major. And I had the chance as I studied history to learn many historical business facts. And one of them is this. In the entire history of business, Douglas, no executive has ever been hired with the sole purpose, the sole responsibility of meeting with salespeople every hour on the hour. It's never happened. <laughs> so what does that tell us? We're an interruption in their day. There's no one staring at their phone saying, oh my gosh, I hope a salesperson calls me right now. No one's doing that. So understanding our toughest competitor highlights the importance of differentiating our outreach approach. Because if there's no meeting, there's no proposal. 
no proposal, no sale, no sale, no commission check. Makes it very logical. Well, Lee, let me ask you a big question. Is prospecting dead? Oh, it's not? (laughs) I've heard that too. There was an interesting study done by the Rain Group. I don't know if you've come across them. Yeah, well, I'd heard of them, but then this study just blew my mind. Please share it. Yeah, so they study this topic. They asked executives if they had ever taken a meeting with a salesperson who reached out to them through prospecting. And it's interesting. When I ask salespeople to guess the percentage, they'll say a fraction of a percent. The answer, 82. 82% of executives said they took a meeting with a salesperson who reached out through prospecting. Mm -hmm. More than four out of five. That's almost like, what was that dentist commercial back in the 70s? Four out of five dentist surveys, said. <laughs> yeah, so, they recommend Crest. There you go. So, and the, but, then, but then they're not just meeting. They're also buying from people that reach out to them. There you go. And, and they also found out the key ingredient, the secret sauce to being in that 82% group, which was personalization. So if your prospecting approach is generic, you're sending generic emails, leaving generic voicemail messages, and, and when you reach them live, you're having the same generic conversation, you ain't getting the meeting. Right, right. And there's many ways to do it. And just so the listener knows, in the book here, this short book, you actually have a 16-day prospecting campaign that you lay out. I do. Exactly what to do. So again, it's it's all there. You know. Well, there's uh, a second part of that, and, and you read it in sales differentiation. When we talk about the the personalization of the outreach, that sales crime theory gives you the tools to personalize the outreach. You know, it's interesting. We, we like to say that sales is a numbers game. I assume you've heard that before. Oh, sure. Okay. But here's the thing, and, and I partially subscribe. I believe numbers is a component. If you fully believe that sales is a numbers game, do you know what the result of that is? You make people feel like a number. Yeah, and the other thing that strikes me is that, sure, you may get that one person out of a 1,000 that you've bothered, but you've alienated 999 others. And and like the old shampoo commercial, and they tell two friends, and they two tell two friends, and yeah. so on, and so on. Yeah. So let me ask you another question. You write on page 28 that business development doesn't need to be as hard as we make it. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Yes, we, we... I thought it was some sort of wizardry. No, no. I, I do think executives and salespeople, they, they search high and low for more of their best clients. But there's a strategy that I've put together, and I shouldn't say put together. It's been used by sales teams that I ran. It's been used by, by coaching clients. And this strategy helps you find more of your best clients. Now, you'll notice I keep saying your best clients. I didn't say largest because they're not synonymous. Mm-hmm. Right. Your largest client may be low margin. They could have some complicated solution that you don't want to replicate. So before you can take advantage of this strategy, you need to gain clarity on who your target client is. Douglas, does your audience like freebies? Yes, they do. In fact, uh, they like the price I charge for this podcast. Oh, excellent. Well, if you go to targetclientprofile.com, there's a free worksheet that you can download that helps you identify the attributes of your target client. And you'll notice I use the expression target client instead of ideal. And this is important for marketing people to hear. Mm -hmm. There's a distinction. When you say your ideal client, what that says to me as a salesperson, 
if all the stars were to align, this is the business we'd love to have. Mm -hmm. Target client says, this is the type of business to pursue all day long who will see value in what we're offering. So there's a distinction in those expressions. But you can't take advantage of the strategy I'm going to share unless you have that clarity on who your best clients are to pursue. Right. And uh, ideal may make people think uh, unicorns and rainbows. Right. Uh, the target is a little bit more somebody who lives in Reelsville. Correct. This is who we're to pursue all day long. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk some more about referrals well, do you want to talk to str- – I didn't share the strategy. Oh, yeah. Uh, is that the that? if you were me? Yes. Yes, yep. please, please. So so this is the if you were me business development strategy, and I'm batting a 1,000 with this. So if you're not a sports fan, it means it's worked every single time. Boy, that's a <laughs> bold statement, isn't it? But I've never had a salesperson use it and come away empty-handed. So here's how it works. You're going to select 10 clients that if you could stick them in a copier as a way to replicate them and grow the business, you'd do it in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And for each of those 10, you're going to have a conversation, not sending an email, not a text, not a voicemail. You're either going to do it in person or on the phone. And during the conversation, you're going to ask a key question. So let me set the stage. So Douglas, you've been working with us a long time. So you're familiar with what we offer and the quality of what we offer. Yeah. Now here's the big question. If you were me, what associations would you be active in? What conferences would you attend? What events would you go to? What would you be reading to meet more people like you? It doesn't have to be so complicated. It's an open book test. Yes, yes. You want to find more of your best clients? Ask the ones you already have where to meet them, where to find them in the wild. You'll notice we're not upselling. We're not cross-selling. We're not asking for referrals. We're not asking them to serve as a reference either. The sole purpose is we're asking them to take our hat place it on their head, provide us with their counsel. And, you know, Douglas, people are really gracious. They really do want to help. Yeah, and you know what? Most customers like you more than you may realize. They really do want to help. But they got to be asked. Yes, and that's why this is <laughs> this is like so many uh, of the really great books that have been on the show over the years where it's a, another example of how you need to go talk to your customers, and this is a yeah. perfect example. And there are some other parts in the in the, in the book there. Uh, so we we've identified the the target customer profile, but let's talk about referrals because I I love this. And you know, sometimes uh, I once I gave a talk and somebody said, "Yeah, if you only had a dollar to spend on marketing, what would you do?" And I can remember saying something like, "You know, I'd." I think I would be making sure I'm uh, asking for referrals and selling as much as I can to my current customers first before I try to go get more, you know, and, and give them a good experience. And that always sure. throws people off because they're like, "No, no, I just need net new leads. I just need more. I just need more of that." So you write on page forty-two that referrals, just a reminder for folks, turn into deals faster and at a higher rate than any other lead source. So. I want to go back to page uh, 35 and ask you to tell us the story about uh, Maria and Tony, where you worked in the past. And I'm not referring to uh, characters from West Side Story. (laughs) Maria, I just met a girl named Maria. 
please tell us about Maria and Tony. When I read that in the book, I thought, oh wait a minute, is this a Lee Saul's joke? No, their their names really no, were Maria and really, Tony. Those are really their names. Yes. Yeah. And, and I was excited to to share the book with them because they didn't know about it. Oh, good. So during the dot com boom, um, I was head of sales for a company in the technology training space. This and is back had, when you were in uh, Washington D.C. area. Yes. Yep. Back in the day, so I'm 52 now, so you can do the math of how long ago that might have been because <laughs> the yeah. dot-com boom is over. So in this team, we had three different sales groups. We had those who sold to the federal government, those who sold to companies, and those who sold to individuals, career changers, people on the outside looking in saying, boy, there's great opportunities in technology. I want to get a job there. So what we would do to reach that group was – advertised in the Washington Post. Every Sunday, we ran an ad on the front page of the employment section of the Washington Post, at least when we could. Sometimes the Washington Post had promotions running and you couldn't run on the front page or they bumped us further in. Our lead flow varied based on the placement of the ad. If it was above the fold on the front page, we had great lead flow for that week. When it fell below the fold or on page three, not so good. And on the days when the, I should say on the Mondays when I'm following a Sunday where we weren't above the fold on the front page. The leads are weak. There you go. I dreaded coming in, Douglas, because I knew there were going to be all these salespeople standing outside my door ready to tell me why they're not going to make their number. Except Maria and Tony. They were never there. And Marie and Tony were my top two salespeople. Top two salespeople never at my door complaining about lead flow. Why? Because after they had received some critical mass, just several months on the team, they built their entire business on referrals. They, they flipped the equation. So the rest of the sales team looked at the leads that we generated as the meat. They didn't. Marie and Tony looked at it as the gravy. Yes. Their fundamental goal, and we, we encouraged all the salespeople, was to become self-sufficient. You know, I, I, I tell this, this story. I share this um, anecdote. I call it the business developer mantra, which is every deal must yield two more. I'm actually having a poster made with that on it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, you, you're right. If you see a lead as a potential sale, then you will, at most, have one sale. And then you go on to write on that same page, rather than thinking about winning a deal, top salespeople look at the award of a contract as the beginning of a potentially lucrative relationship. See, that's why I hate the word closing. I know, I know. You, you don't... I despise it. Yeah. I mean, there, and there's several reasons, right? We talk about salespeople, we're client-centric, and then we talk about closing. You know, no one woke up this morning saying, oh my gosh, I hope a salesperson closes me. <laughs> yeah, it's not just like they're not looking for that call. They're also not looking to be closed. And then the second thing is it creates the wrong mindset. And if you don't have the right mindset, I don't care what you're doing. If you're an athlete, you know the power of the mind. If you don't have the right mindset, so you hear close, it means the end. Yes. Yeah, it's really just the starting line. It's not the, that's right. It's yeah. the new phase of the relationship. That's right. That's there's right. And that's there's cross sells. There's referrals, references. So much more to be done. And that was the mistake that the rest of the sales team saw was that they would look at the leads we generated as the meat. 
they would look to get whatever they could from it and wait for more. Mm. It didn't become self-sufficient. Yeah. Well, let's uh, move on and talk about the uh, critical person needed to win more deals at the prices you want. And if you could explain the concept of, um, I think some people may be familiar with the term like an internal coach or a, a champion, but why do you actually prefer to use the word mentor and talk about what a mentor is and what, how they can help or or hurt. Yeah. So I, I thought the word coach was too vague. So if somebody's nice to you, they're a coach. That's not a coach to me. So I, I felt that a tighter definition and criteria was needed, which is why I developed the concept of mentor. Um, to be a mentor, there's two zero to five rankings their level of commitment to your solution being the one that's selected and their level of influence in making the deal happen. Two zero to five rankings, level of influence and level of commitment. And everyone that you meet along the selling journey, you're evaluating on that scale. Now, in an ideal world, you would find somebody who's a five in both categories, extremely rare. Uh, More often than not, when a salesperson tells me that they have a five in level of influence and level of commitment, it's attributable to level of optimism as opposed to reality. Right. Or they're being really nice to you. They're being really nice. And and you'll notice in the book, I even say how nice they are is not a consideration (laughs) in this scale. Be careful if they're being really nice to you. Right. And look, I'm in the Midwest. You know, Minnesota nice. That's fundamentally how people are here. Sure. Doesn't mean that they are fully on board with your solution, that they're going to drive to make it happen, and it doesn't mean that they're overly influential in decision making. And you know what? Uh, it's I think it's also true with Southerners in the United States. They, they'll be real nice, they'll be polite, but it's more difficult to tell where you stand with them, which is why I hear somebody from New York – because I lived in New York for many years, I missed that. You know, yeah. when I was in New York, I always knew where I stood with people. Even if they, maybe it was a colleague telling me to go perform an anatomically impossible act on myself. <laughs> At least I knew where I stood. I found it uh, so much easier. But yeah, so the mentor. You know how many times I've said that to my wife? I can't even, it's amazing. That yes. you miss being back in New York? No, or, not that I miss it, but exactly what you said, that you know exactly where you stand. Yeah, I miss that. And, you know, it's like the, the sales expression, no is my second favorite word. <laughs> At least you know <laughs> exactly. where you stand. You're not going to be led along. So anyway, be careful if they're nice to you. But this mentor, it's it's a, a, a great way to um, th- that you explain on, on kind of what to look for. And the person you're talking to may not actually be the mentor that you need. Which is why you should continue to, you know, meet the other decision makers uh, in there. I just want to move on to uh, closing. Always be closing. The myth of closing. We've talked about that. It's not the finish line. Uh, And you say that uh, you and I've heard this from some other authors. They get hired because we have trouble with closing, and that is approximately one hundred percent never the problem. (laughs) It's it's not the closing. It's the the handling of the the discovery phase. And I just wanted to quote from page 74. You write, one of the most accepted sales premises is that people buy based on emotion and justify their decisions with logic, which is true. Just about every salesperson on the planet at one time or another has heard that expression. Yet many people 
Many salespeople don't apply that concept when selling, particularly in the discovery phase of the new client acquisition process. Can you take us through what makes for good discovery and, and, and talk about this concept of horizontal and vertical? Really helpful, very important, and also has big implications for any marketers that are creating content to try to help the sales team. Yeah, so let's talk first on the emotional piece. Like you mentioned, it's an accepted premise. It's not a lease-alls thing that people buy based on an emotion and justify it with logic. And we completely forget that when we get into discovery. So one of the first things when we put together a discovery program is we need to think about the emotional transference. And that starts with identifying how that individual feels about this particular point that we address before we walk in the door. Mm. And there's a set of emotions around that. That's important for us to understand. Then the second part is, okay, imagine the meeting is over. We're leaving. We're ending Zoom. We're heading back to the car, whatever it might be. How do we want them to feel after the meeting? Mm -hmm. So we need to understand those two points because if you don't understand that, you can't have the emotional transference take place during the discovery meeting. And I haven't seen anyone ever do that. It's all fact-based. So we got to tell them this. We got to ask them that. Mm -hmm. Talk about our product. Right. Right, right. So we've all heard the expression, but we're not applying it in discovery. And that's where that emotional piece is so important. And on page 76, Lee has three entire columns of potential feelings that your decision influencer might be having. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of them on here. It must be 30 or 40. And uh, even I circled three of them like, oh, yeah, I circled uh, because we sell, you know, marketing agency. We're dealing with a lot of company uh, owners or or people who are feeling confused, frustrated, or overwhelmed. That's that's a lot of the listeners, too. They're trying to get a handle on all this stuff. And I I just found that helpful. And then, you know, I got to thinking about how we want them to feel afterwards. It's, it's, It's a great guide. And the thing is you need to not just identify the emotion, but the why as well. Mm-hmm. What's the emotion and why do they feel that way if we're talking about before the meeting and then afterwards? Yeah. How do we expect them to feel and why do we expect them to feel that way? Well, so that, that leads us to vertical. Horizontal and vertical questions. Yeah. What's the difference? Compare and contrast. So we're going to take the audience to a place nobody likes to go. The dentist chair. Oh, yes. Gosh, <laughs> I had that same emotion when I was reading it. It was like- Do you have a drill sound? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get that, but I'm afraid it's going to remind too many people of the movie Marathon Man. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we go there for our routine exam, right? They do the cleaning, and then the next thing that happens is they pull out this big metal hook, and they go tooth by tooth. And as they're going tooth by tooth, we're saying a prayer, hoping what? That it doesn't stick. <laughs> right. And then, gosh darn it, the hook sticks. What happens next? The dentist sets up camp there. He's going to do a complete analysis and figure out what is going on with that tooth. And that's what we need to do in sales with our discovery questions. I use the expression horizontal and vertical questions to describe them. Horizontal questions are the surface level questions, the hook going tooth by tooth, but then the hook sticks. And we need to ask vertical questions, and you can visualize vertical, the direction that that's going, mm. and get a complete picture of that particular data point that we've just learned. You know, we're so quick, we get a piece of information, okay, let's write it down. Oh, another piece of information, let's write it down. It's all surface level. 
we need to ask questions, get a complete picture of that particular point. And, you know, here's the problem. This is the only time, Douglas, where I allow people to get away with blaming their parents. Oh, right. It's their fault that we are masters of this because we all come into the world naturally inquisitive. Why is this so big? Why is the sky so blue? And parents finally get annoyed and they go, it just is enough. Have a lollipop. Oh, so true. And and it brought back all the trauma of first grade when I can remember my <laughs> first grade teacher she once took me to the cafeteria because she wanted to get some coffee. And she said, you, you come with me. And I was thinking, what in the world? Why, why is she bringing me here? And we sat down. She was drinking her coffee. And I think even then I said something like, what, what's going on? What, what are we doing here? And she said, you ask too many questions. There you go. <laughs> so we've been – And it hasn't stopped me, so there. Good. Which is why you interview people now. Right. Show her. <laughs> so – We've been conditioned not to ask a lot of questions, Mm -hmm. but every study in selling that's ever been done reveals you need to ask thoughtful, insightful questions if you're going to advance the deal. So you get to blame mom and dad, but now that you know it, you need to fix it. So in Sell Different, there's actually some exercises to condition yourself to think in terms of horizontal and vertical questions. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I take you outside of your selling world. It doesn't matter what you're selling. So I give you an example like a fact stated is I want to go to Florida. Come up with as many vertical questions as you can based on the statement, I want to go to Florida. Uh, East Coast or West Coast? Do you like going south? Do you like it where it's really hot? What do you like to do in Florida? Have you been to Florida before? How are you going to get there? Mm-hmm. Do you like the ocean? Do you like pools? What do you like? So, And I, I do this with, with teams to help them recondition their, their brain, and I'll give them a few minutes to come up with as many questions as they can. I had one group compiled all the questions. They came up with 80-something unique questions in just a few minutes. That's terrific, and it, it's a great way to flex those muscles. So, Lee, in our, our remaining time, there were just a couple of big ideas that I wanted to ask you about. And on, let's see, on page 103, you talk about that there's a potential deal killer in every sale. It doesn't matter if you're business-to-business, business-to-consumer, or business-to-government salesperson. This risk exists in every deal. Lee Sauls, what is it? Fear of change. Doesn't matter how good your offer is, it doesn't matter how much pain they shared that they're in, they always know the situation they're in could be worse. I think it's more powerful than people realize. Oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, And this is back to that emotional piece. You come in, you made a very logical case for why they should switch to you, but you didn't consider the emotions that are involved with this. You know, I put my name on this, something goes wrong, Big career risk. Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention a risk for the business. Um, It's worse than buying a bad roofing job for your house because (laughs) that doesn't affect your future earnings. You know, you buy a a bad car. That's why B2B is much more emotional. So talk about how onboarding can help with this. So that's really the key is that when, when we look at how do we neutralize fear of change? And what, where it gets its strength, fear of change gets its strength in the lack of clarity in how I go from what I'm doing today or who I'm buying from today to fully installed working with you. I can't get my mind around it. And so what I talk about in the book is productizing client onboarding. 
mm-hmm. meaning full definition of how I go from where I am today to being fully installed with you. And ultimately, when I say productizing, this is a topic of conversation. We don't get we don't wait to get asked this question. We're going to put this as a conversation on the table, just like any other product service technology that you would be selling. Because we know fear of change exists, whether they bring it up or not. Highly unlikely that someone's going to say, oh my gosh, I'm afraid if I make this change, I'm going to get fired. No, but it's there. It's the elephant in the room. And it's the elephant in the room. And the expression today, I'm sure you've heard, is ghosting. Right? Yes. They just go, they, I used to hear they go dark on you, which is now called ghosting. Yeah, I experienced that when I was young and single and I was dating uh, women. <laughs> there you go. Fear of change. So <laughs> yeah, poor women. So we talk about productizing it. It means first gaining clarity on what the steps are. And again, we, we provide that in the book. And then ultimately turning it into a document that you're going to share them. You're not going to email it over because you certainly wouldn't do that with your product information. You're going to walk them through it. And mm-hmm. this should be a nice, colorful, simple, easy to understand document that we walk through when we start hearing the buying signs. They're intrigued by what you're doing. And once you're getting those signs, to start explaining to them how they go from where they are today to being fully installed with you. Yes, it really can make them feel safe. It seems like it's a big differentiator. And I just recently interviewed uh, John Jantz about his new book, The Ultimate Marketing Engine. Mm-hmm. This is a big part of it. And as a matter of fact, I just had an interview scheduled with Donna Weber. She's got a new book called Onboarding Matters. So an entire book, of course, every chapter in your book, there's been books written about just that. But there's a whole book just about the importance of onboarding and how that helps with sales, but it helps with marketing. And I think it really helps the customers to feel safe. It's to give them the confidence, right, in the, in the decision. So the last thing I want to ask about is in your chapter 12, which is titled, Are You About to Lose Your Largest Account? And you tell the story of a, uh, a flathead screw provider that they made and sold screws to a building company. And the salesperson made big commissions. They were really pleased with the service. And then for for a few years, and it seemed really happy and blissful, as you say, mm-hmm. and then they lost the entire account. Another competitor came along and took the account away. Tell us about this conquer account strategy, because that is a real good solution to blind spots that a lot of companies have. And again, this is yet another thing that I could envision a marketing person trying to help the sales folks work through. Sure. So when I look at most client portfolios and I contrast them with what they have to offer with what their clients are buying, the matrix looks like Swiss cheese. They're selling partial solutions across the board. And so often what happens is you acquire a new client because on this, because of the story of being comprehensive, or we like to say one-stop shop for our marketing friends, which everyone says, yeah, yes, and that might be one Full of the service. reasons why, yeah. yeah. But they buy a piece now, and no one ever goes back to that comprehensive one-stop shop story. So we have a fragmented portfolio. As a result, we have vulnerabilities and lost opportunities. Vulnerability in the story that you shared is the provider was only buying a product, a screw, Mm -hmm. 
But someone came along and said, by the way, what are you putting the screw into? What type of materials? And how are you installing the screw into that material? Mm-hmm. And what else are you using? And what else are you using? And and it should be a crime, a sales crime, when you lose an account for the reason that they didn't know that you offered this other stuff. Yes, and here's a word that everyone should be listening for. I didn't know you all sold those, or I didn't know you all did that as well. That's a big clue that you're not uh, filling the holes in the Swiss cheese. Absolutely. And so there's revenue that's being lost that you're letting your competitor enjoy, and you're at risk to that salesperson who comes along who has that comprehensive conversation and helps them to see that they can take all these pieces and parts and have one provider that does it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At terrific, very strategic. So, Lee, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? The thoughtfulness and care that you can have to affect change in your the way you sell. In other words, if you look at that entire experience, the new client acquisition experience from the very first touch point all the way through, once they say yes to account management, to customer service, to pilot programs, and saying, how can I stand out from the competition? How can I do something meaningful that my competitors are not? Nothing to do with what we're selling, everything to do with how we're selling. Mm -hmm. So what is one thing a listener could do today? Just one thing to get them started, get them committed, other than download the first chapter for free, I believe you you have, uh, or that template. But what's what's one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book? So without reading the book, one thing that you could do right now is what I touched upon a moment ago. Ask yourself, what is it that I can do different than my competition that my buyer will find meaningful? So not different for the sake of different, meaningfully different. And we forget that word meaningfully. We just say, okay, we're going to differentiate ourselves. But if no one cares about it, it doesn't matter. Meaningful to that customer, like I touched on earlier. And one other thing we didn't have time to talk about, but you, in the book, you explain that nobody loses deals because of price. And that's a controversial thing to say, but it seems very often the default of a of a company or a sales team saying, well, if we just had better prices, that reveals a big problem with your sales process. Agreed. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including the template you mentioned, your website, your LinkedIn profile. And to the listener, if you would, please reach out to Lee Sauls and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. It's a terrific book. Lee, I hope this isn't the last book that you are going to write. Uh, Your fans are clamoring for more. And to the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast or in your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. And Lee, I should have mentioned to you earlier on, for this interview, I'm actually wearing my Sell Different t-shirt. Awesome. (laughs) The book is Sell Different, All New Sales Differentiation Strategies to Outsmart, Outmaneuver, and Outsell the Competition. The author is Lee Sauls. Lee, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. And count me in for number 500. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks 
and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh,